Back in 2011, Mark Shields approached me about serving in the kids' ministry. Uh, he asked me to uh, start leading a group of uh, second to third grade boys. I felt like I was not equipped to be able uh, to teach them and explain to them in ways that, um, that they needed to hear because, you know, I didn't really grow up in a, in a Christian house myself. Mark explained that uh, the church would provide all of the resources that, that we needed. Um, and really, my only job was to focus on building relationships with the kids. And so I thought, okay, you know, I can do that. Uh, so it wasn't too long after that, that uh, is when I met uh, Ben. He was uh, part of my small group of boys. Uh, and Ben was great. You know, he, he was he was very mature, uh, especially for his age. And, and so I think it was maybe uh, about a year, year and a half ago, uh, I was in a meeting and, and something came up about uh, Ben starting to serve on the worship team. I felt really proud of him that, that he was taking that step uh, as, a, as an older student to serve our church and bless our church. Uh, then uh, a few weeks ago, had this just really cool moment. Uh, I was preaching uh, on Sunday in Westerville and uh, Ben uh, came to our church and uh, was leading worship for us. It was incredible to, to think about God's faithfulness and uh, my decision to, to say yes and how he's used that to uh, profoundly you know, shape my life personally, uh, but, but also too that, uh, that maybe that decision in some way will, has and will help continue to, to shape the next generation of servants like Ben, who was up there sharing a stage with me. The mission of God, you know, transcends just like what age you are. It's something that's relevant to people to not just feel like, oh, you have to be an adult to start using your gifts or to start serving the Lord. It really does speak to God's faithfulness and His plan that, you know, he would use Ryan to teach me, to invest in me, you know, and then later on I'd have the opportunity to be, you know, doing something alongside him, serving in ministry alongside of him. Pretty cool to see that looking back. All right, well, good morning, everybody. Good morning, good morning, LifePoint family. Welcome back, guests. It's good to see you here this morning. My name's Cale. I'm the teaching pastor here at the Delaware campus. And if you have a Bible, go ahead and turn to Joshua chapter 2. We're uh, closing out a series this morning. We've been in a four-week series called Ordinary People. We've been looking at this reality uh, that God uses ordinary people to accomplish His extraordinary purposes, that God uses ordinary people to accomplish His extraordinary purposes. And in light of that, knowing that that's a reality, one of the uh, specific applications of the series, we've been asking folks pretty pointedly. We've said, hey, if you're part of the church family, if you call LifePoint your home, we're asking you to take a step throughout the course of this series to say yes, uh, as Ryan did, to take a step to serve on a life team. And I'm, I'm thrilled at the response that we've seen. So we've had, we've had 88 folks step forward during the course of the series to, to say, hey, yes, we've had, in the last three weeks, we've, we've been able to plug in about 40 of those uh, directly into serving, getting trained, 
and still more people in the queue to do that. So I think we showed this number at the very beginning that there were 76 people needed uh, to take a step. We've, that's down to 37 uh, people at this point needed. Again, we've got a lot of folks in the queue as well who are t- still taking a step. But one last opportunity uh, today, uh, there are some bistro tables out in the lobby. So when we're done with our time today, if that's you and you're saying, hey, I've not yet taken a step to serve on a life team, but I call Life Point my home, I want to challenge you today before today is out to take that step. And I think Ryan and Ben's story is just such a good reminder uh, that we just don't always see all that God is doing, uh, that we don't know what all is God going to do when we say yes and we make ourselves available and say, uh, yeah, I'll serve on the Connections team. Yeah, I'll serve on this team. I'll serve on the youth team. I'll serve in LifePoint Kids. Uh, we have an opportunity when we do things like that. It's, not, it's more than just hey, I'm giving up another hour of my time. It's, Lord, I may have a hand here in helping shape the next generation and pass on the faith to the next generation. God using us, using ordinary people to accomplish his extraordinary purposes. So thank you for all those who are serving. Thank you for those who have taken a step during the course of this series. And if you've not yet done so, don't miss out today. Take that step. Now here in Joshua 2, We've been looking, again, in the course of this series at some really unlikely people, some unlikely heroes that God uses. And uh, today we're going to see perhaps the most unlikely of the people. One of, the, one of these folks that you would just think she's from the wrong place, the wrong people, the wrong profession, and yet God uses her. Uh, to move forward his plan for redemption and for salvation. Here's, here's the setting. The Israelites have wandered throughout the uh, wilderness for 40 years. 40 years they've been in the wilderness. Moses has died. And the next person to take over, God raises up Joshua, Moses' sort of number two guy, to take his place. And just a little uh, aside on that, as I was prepping this week, I was thinking about Joshua and thinking to myself, who wants to be the guy who follows Moses? Can you imagine, right? Uh, maybe if you've ever taken over for someone who they, they've done a great job in some ways and you feel nervous about, am I going to be able to fill their shoes? How would you like to take over for Moses? Like, how do you follow that up in a sense? That was where my mind began to go. And then I thought to myself, you know what? It's not actually about that at all. It was never about Moses. Just as, like, just as it's not about Joshua. And Joshua, I'm sure... May, Maybe he dealt with some insecurity around, am I going to be able to fill these shoes? But it seems like Joshua was faithful and understood. It's not about filling Moses' shoes. It's about following the God who called Moses and who called Joshua. It's not about their personalities. It's not about their leadership capabilities. It's about the God who called both of them. So Joshua's job is the same as Moses' job, and that is just to be faithful and not to worry about comparing himself to Moses. And as I thought about that, I thought, how instructive for you and for me. There's so many areas of our lives where we are insecure because we're comparing ourselves to those around us. And the reality is God never asked us to compare ourselves to our brothers and sisters, to compare ourselves to someone else. In fact, he literally commands us not to and instead says, don't compare yourself to them. You keep your eyes fixed on him and you just be faithful to fulfill the ministry that God has called you to fulfill. Keep your eyes fixed on him and don't compare yourself to others. God has installed Joshua as the next leader and he tells him, Uh, It's time. 
It's time for the people of Israel, after 40 years of wandering, to go in and to take possession of the land that I've promised you. Interestingly enough, Joshua, he's one of the, the few people who have survived. The whole generation passed away because 40 years earlier, Moses, right as they came to the promised land, which is where they are again now, they're on the border of the promised land. Moses sent 12 spies to go in and look at the land and to bring a report back. And Joshua was one of those 12. He was a young man at the time. And 10 of them come back and say, there's no way. The cities are too fortified. The people are too huge. We've got no chance. Even though God promised them, Joshua and another guy named Caleb were the only two of the 12 who came back and said, let's go. The Lord's promised us this. Let's move forward. Let's trust him. But they were, in a sense, overruled, and God said, you're going out into the wilderness for 40 years until that generation passes away because they would not believe me and trust me. And so here they are once again, 40 years later, on the border of the promised land, and I find it interesting, this time Joshua only sends out two spies because apparently that was all that was needed. And so he sends out two spies, and that's where we pick up here in Joshua chapter 2, verse 1. Then Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim, Go look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and stayed there. Already here in verse 2, we are introduced to the heroine of the story. And I told you perhaps the most unlikely person that we would think to be used by God. Rahab has no position or great wealth to speak of. She's not even an Israelite. She's a Canaanite. More than that, she's a citizen of the very city they're about to destroy because of its wickedness. And on top of all of that, she is a prostitute. It's likely, scholars say, that uh, in her profession she ran sort of a tavern or an inn, which is likely why the Israelite spies would have been staying at her house. That's a little bit of speculation. We don't know for sure, but it seems likely. But we also know from the next part of the passage, it's well known, even if she runs this tavern or this inn, it is well known by the citizens of Jericho what it is that she does, what her profession is, that she's a prostitute. And I just love that God, in his mercy and in his grace and in his ways that are so much higher and so different than our ways, chooses Rahab and says, I'm going to use her for the deliverance and the encouragement of the people of Israel. Here in verse, look at the end of verse 2 here, or the beginning of verse 2. The king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent this message to Rahab. Bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. She said, yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. And I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You may catch up with them. But she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax she had laid out on the roof. <clears throat> Scholars sort of debate back and forth the ethicality or the morality of, she just lied. Is that okay because of the purpose for which it is? And they kind of debate back and forth. And uh, to be honest, uh, probably not commendable, probably shouldn't have lied. But that's for another day to debate that. The point is what she's doing here and the fact that she's about to place her faith and her hope in the God of Israel. Look on at verse seven. So the men set out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate was shut. Before the spies lay down for the night, she went up to the roof and said to them, what follows here, these next two verses, form the heart of the entire passage and the entire chapter 
chapter 2 of Joshua. It is Rahab's declaration of faith to these two men. She says this, I know, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. Not only does she know, she says, we've heard. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. And when we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord, your God in heaven, or the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. What she just said is an extraordinary statement of faith coming from a Canaanite woman. We have to remember, she's not been raised. Some of us, you don't come from a Christian background or a Christian household. This might resonate with you, but others of us, you've been raised in a Christian household. You've been told about the Lord since you were a little kid. That's not the case for her. She's been raised with her own uh, set of gods in the Canaanite religion, in the Canaanite faith. And yet she looks at these two Israelites and says, because of what we've heard, because of what God has done for you, I know that God, Yahweh, your God, your God alone is God in heaven and on earth. We have to understand that her embracing of Yahweh, her placing her trust and her faith, her allegiance to him comes at a real cost. Again, she's not from the Israelite background. Her embracing of Yahweh means the rejecting of, of her former faith of her former way of life. It means turning away from everything that's comfortable for her, everything that she's been taught, all the Canaanite system of religion and gods, everything that the people of Jericho would be placing their hope in at this moment. She rejects that, turns away from it, turns away from her former life and says, no, I'm putting my hope and my faith in your God. Think about it, if this goes poorly, she's a dead woman. If Jericho survives this, she's put in her lot with the Israelites and placed her faith in their God. It's instructive for us. Her allegiance, her actions show where her allegiance lies. The, the works of her life show, and it's true for you and me, your actions, my actions will show where it is that our allegiance lies. As I was reflecting on this, I came up with a bunch of different ways of saying this, all alliterative just for your joy, right? Your actions reveal where your allegiance lies. Your works follow your worship. Your time follows your trust. Your labors follow your love. We could do this all day. Your dollars follow your desires. Your passions follow your purpose. If you will look at your life and you will think for a moment what it is, where, what do the works of my life show about what I worship? What do my actions show about my allegiance? You can look at Rahab's life and you can look at this moment and see that everything she's about to do from this moment forward, from hiding these men to then doing the things that she asks, placing her faith in God, staking her whole lot with the people of Israel and the God of Israel shows where her allegiance lies. It's not to her people. It's not to the God she's been raised with. It is to the God she now trusts and believes in. Can I ask you for a moment to look at your own life and your own heart and ask these questions? What do your actions say about your allegiance? What do your passions say about your purpose? What does the direction of your life say about your greatest desires? Jesus said it to us this way. He said, if you love me, you'll obey me. You'll do the things that I told you to do. 
You'll be able to look at your life and your life will show that your greatest desire is him, that you worship him and him alone, that you love him. So can I ask you, do your actions show an allegiance to the Lord? Do you look at your life? Do you look at your, the way you spend your time, your talents, your treasure, your money, your resources, your energy, your, the best of your creative energy? Does it all show and reveal a deep faith in and love for the Lord above all else? As I ask that question, uh, the, the reality is, the simple reality is that for some of us, that answer is no. And maybe for different reasons. There may be some of us here this morning that the answer for you is no, because you would say, I'm just not a Christian. I don't, I don't yet claim this. But today is a fork in the road sort of moment for you. Because perhaps like Rahab, you have heard what God has done. You've heard the story of the gospel. You've heard that Jesus is the Son of God who came and who lived for you, who died in your place, who rose again that you might have new life. And you've maybe heard Christians or family members tell you about this. Man, will you turn from your sin and trust Jesus with your life? And today is that fork in the road moment for you, like Rahab, to say, will you reject even the things that you've been taught, your former way of life, and say, I'm gonna trust this God with my life. I'm gonna turn from my sin, and I'm trusting that what Jesus did at the cross, it's enough for me. For some of us, that's where we are today. Will you turn and will you trust? But for others of us, perhaps more of us, the answer is maybe you're, you're hearing those questions going, honestly, Kale, the answer is no. And it's not that I wouldn't call myself a Christian. It's just that if I'm honest with myself, if we're honest with ourselves, some of our actions don't reflect a great allegiance to the Lord. And I'm going to say some things here, and this is not to hurt any of us or harm any of us. Ultimately, it's to help, though I recognize it might sting. Some of us right now are spending more time and energy on our fantasy football leagues than on our following of Christ. Some of us right now are more passionate about politics than we are the making of disciples, more passionate about temporary kingdom matters than eternal kingdom matters. Some of us say, I don't have any time to read God's word, or man, I'm just not a reader. But the reality is we're all readers. We read dozens of social media posts a day or news articles a day. It's not a matter of whether we read or not. It's a matter of what we choose to read, what we choose to focus our time and attention on. And again, the reality is, well, if that's the case, what do I do with that? That's the question that follows. Kale, what do I do with that? Because that stings a little bit. And I would say, yes, I know it does. It stings for me when I see it in my life. But when the Holy Spirit or the Word of God convicts our hearts, that sting is not meant to be a sting that hurts us. That sting is meant to be a sting that wakes us up and says, look, let's turn from that. Lord, I want my allegiance to be to you. And so can I implore you, if, if that's where you are today, you're looking at your life and your passions and the directions of your life and saying, man, it just doesn't reflect a great allegiance to the Lord. But I say that I'm a believer, but my love is not there. The passion is not there. Can I implore you, let the response to that this morning not be one of anger or pride, but one of confession and repentance. To confess to the Lord and say, Lord, this is where my heart is today. You see it. I'm not hiding anything from you. You see it anyway. So Lord, here's my heart. Will you change it? And repentance means not just feeling bad about it, but rather repentance is a change of heart, a change of mind that results in a change of action. Today, take a step. Go talk to someone on our Next Steps team. When we're done today, go find that person. Confess to another human being after you've confessed to the Lord. I and mean, here's where my heart is today. 
My passions have not shown a great or a purpose to my life. My, the direction of my life has not shown a great desire for the Lord. The labors of my life don't show great love to him. Confess that to someone else and ask them, will you pray with me? Lord, will you change my heart? And then take a step. Have a plan when you leave today. Say, Lord, show me what one step I need to take today. Maybe it's I need to go home and I need to turn some electronics off. Maybe I need to go home today and just rethink, write down my priorities. What's taking most of my time? What is taking most of the passion and creative energy of my life? And ask yourself, do I need to reprioritize today? That's part of repentance. Is again, confession. Lord, you've convicted me of this, but now I want to take a step and I want to change. And then remember this, above all, as you confess and as you repent, above all, Below all, overgirding all, is the beautiful reality that as you come to him in confession and repentance, you know that forgiveness is already yours. Because when Jesus went to the cross, he said, it's finished. Forgiveness is purchased, bought for you with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. That's the beautiful thing about Christian conviction and then confession and repentance is it doesn't leave us saying, man, I just feel bad about myself. Ultimately, it brings us closer to our Savior because we know forgiveness is ours, purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we don't have to wonder, God, do you still love me? We know he does. He showed that for us, demonstrates it in this, that he sent Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. But take the step today. If God convicts you today, confess, repent, and take a step to act differently today. Now look at verse 12. Joshua 2, verse 12. Now then, this is Rahab speaking. She tells these men, please swear to me. After she's hidden them, kept them alive, and is about to send them back to the Israelite camp, she says, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I've shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and my mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them. I love Rahab, right? This isn't about just saving her own skin, but she looks to her old family and all who belong to her and say, I want them to be saved. Give me a sure sign that you'll save not just me, but my father, my mother, my brothers, my sisters, my whole family, and that you'll save us from death. They give her their word that they will not harm her or her family. But they ask her, in a sense, for a sign in return, something that they will know that will identify her and her household. And so look at verse 17. Now the men said to her, This oath you made us swear will not be binding on us unless, when we enter the land, you have tied this scarlet cord in the window through which you let us down. Unless you have brought your father and mother, your brothers and all your family into your house. If any of them go outside your house into the street, their blood will be on their own heads. We will not be responsible. It's, it's an invasion. It's a war. They said, this is the way. You put this scarlet cord in the window and we'll tell our troops. That's how we know. You don't touch that house. But he says, if any of them go outside, we won't be responsible for them. As for those who are in the house with you, their blood will be on our head if a hand is laid on them. But if you tell what we are doing, then we'll be released from the oath you made us swear. She hears them and in verse 21, she says, Agreed. Let it be as you say. So she sent them away and they departed and she tied the scarlet cord in the window. I'm gonna come back to the scarlet cord when we close, but for a moment here, let's just continue on. These men go back to Joshua and it's fascinating. They are so encouraged by her report. They go back to Joshua and they basically repeat to him verbatim what Rahab said to them. They say, the Lord has surely given us the whole land into our hands because the people are melting in fear because of, because of us. 
I love, these two guys go back to Joshua and it's the faith and testimony of a Canaanite prostitute. That's what gives God's people the courage that they need to move forward. Think about that for a moment. They go in here and it's her report. She says, man, we've all heard about you and we are terrified. We know what God did for you. And they're so encouraged by this. They go back and they tell Joshua, clearly the Lord is ahead of us. He's already working here. Let's go and let's take it. And it's such a good reminder. For some of us here, you think you've been hearing this series and you think, I know God uses ordinary people, but I don't even feel like I qualify as ordinary. My life is so broken, so messed up. I so regret all the things that I've done. I'm so overwhelmed by the weight of my sin. I'm just not sure that God could use me. Think about Rahab for a moment. She is not a citizen of Israel. She's a citizen of Jericho. Her life, her past is pretty awful. There have been things done to her, I'm sure, but also things that she's done. And yet the grace of God is sufficient for her to heal her, to forgive her. The grace of God is sufficient for you. And God uses her for his glory to move his plans forward. If God can use Rahab, he can use you. And you need to remember that and embrace that this morning. In fact, you move on, right? So you go into chapter six, the people of Israel come in. They wipe out the city of Jericho. And in fact, they don't even have to do anything really. They just circle the wall a bunch of times as sort of this uh, religious ritual. They're just trusting God because God said to do it. And they circle it enough times, the walls literally fall down and without firing a single arrow, without firing a single shot or laying down a single siege ladder, the walls come down and the city is theirs. And Rahab, of course, and her family are protected by this scarlet cord. You move then into the New Testament just as a reflection of what all does this story mean? Rahab is mentioned three times in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 11, James chapter 2, and Matthew chapter 1. And in Hebrews 11 verse 31, this is what it says. By faith, Rahab the prostitute did not perish with those who were disobedient because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. She is one of Hebrews 11, if you remember that passage, it's what's called the hall of faith. It literally lists out all these people from Scripture. By faith, they did this. By faith, Abraham did this. By faith, Noah did this. Rahab is one of only two women mentioned in that entire passage alongside Sarah. And she's mentioned right alongside Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and David. She is celebrated in the New Testament for her faith, that she placed her hope and her faith in the Lord and in the Lord alone. She's not only celebrated for her faith, but she's celebrated for a faith that moved her to action and obedience. That's what James says. That's what he highlights. His whole letter is about highlighting the relationship between faith and works. That's why he says in James 2, 25, and in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way. Her faith played itself out in works and in obedience. And then there's Matthew 1. You say, what in the world does Matthew 1 talk about? Matthew 1, if you remember, is the author Matthew starting off the good news of the gospel. And what does he start off with? A genealogy, which all of us, I'm sure, have read every word of. He starts off with his genealogy and he lists out, this is Jesus' lineage. And there are five women mentioned in Jesus' lineage. And Rahab is one of those. I want you to think about that for a moment. At this moment here in Joshua 2, we don't know it yet. Rahab certainly doesn't know it. I'm not sure any of the people know it, but God already knows. Rahab, I'm looking at you and choosing you and saying, not only am I going to forgive you and include you in the people of Israel, not only am I going to save your family, but from, from your very family line is going to come the Savior. 
Jesus, the Son of God. From your line, you are going to be included as a great, 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 great grandmother of the Son of God himself. What such is the grace and the mercy of God. This is a story. When you zoom out and just look at the story and say, how does this instruct us? It is a story of grace. It's a story of faith. And it's a story of redemption. It's a story of God's grace. Number one, God's grace poured out on the life of Rahab. She had a hard life. And as I said a minute ago, I'm sure she had had some things done to her. It was a cruel culture in a lot of ways. I'm sure at times she was a victim of some of her circumstances. And at the same time, the scriptures doesn't say, but that's where you can place all of the blame. No, there are things that she's done. Sin that she has committed. She's been sinned against and also she has sinned. And God's grace is sufficient to heal her, to forgive her, and his grace is sufficient for you and for me. It's a story of faith. We said it two weeks ago. Our response to God's grace matters. God's grace, the New Testament tells us, is meant to lead us to repentance, his kindness over our lives. When you can look at your life, and many of us have said it, man, I've just been so blessed. You look back over your life and you see the way God has intervened, how he kept you from sin, how he forgave you of sin, how he healed you, how he met you in your darkest moments. We are not supposed to look at that and take God's grace for granted and say thank you and then continue to keep doing the same things, but rather to say, oh Lord, thank you for your grace. It truly is undeserved. And then to respond in faith, to say, Lord, I want to trust you more. Lord, I want to turn from sin. I want to walk in obedience to you. And that's what this story is celebrating. Rahab's allegiance to the Lord. Rahab looking at her life and saying, I'm turning away from all of it and I'm trusting Yahweh, the God of Israel, who alone is God of heaven and earth. And it's a story of redemption. To redeem means to buy something back, to take it out of sin, to bring it out, take it from death and bring it to life. And I just think the very fact that her story is included in the Bible that it's then highlighted in the New Testament, that she's praised for her faith, for her works, for God sovereignly choosing her and including her in the very genealogy of Christ. It's such a powerful reminder to you and me that the Bible, our Christian faith, is not about holding human beings up and saying, look at how good they are. But rather, it's about holding up people in the Bible and saying, look at how broken they are and look at how good God is. You go through the hall of faith and you look at Rahab and Abraham and Noah, every single one of them has mistakes and sin in their life. I've been reading through Genesis in my personal time and Abraham is celebrated as this man of faith and there are other times where you're looking at some of the things he does and you're going, what are you doing? Why would you do that? Why would you lie about that? He's not a perfect man. The Bible is not about highlighting individual human beings like you and me and saying, look at how great they are. They're so much better than everyone else. It's about highlighting us in all of our brokenness and yet saying, look at the one man who is perfect, who came and who lived a perfect life in our place. Jesus, our only hope. Will you trust him? Will you turn from sin? And will you celebrate and put your faith in this God who loves to redeem our God is a God who loves to redeem. He loves to bring people back from the pit. He loves to save us from our sin. He's a God who loves to take shepherd boys and make them kings and take prostitutes and make them heroines of the faith. He's a God who loves to take sinners like you and me and to give us new life, to redeem us, to send us back out in the world, to then use us as ordinary people for his extraordinary purposes. And the way he accomplished this, the bridge to him, is through Jesus, his son, sent in our place, who lived a perfect life and then died a brutal death 
and then rose again that we might have new life. And the question is, will you trust him? Now, we'll close with this. I told you I'd come back to this scarlet cord. When we read the Old Testament, it's important that we read it. We say this a lot here, but I keep saying it because it's important. When you read the Old Testament, don't read it as just a series of disconnected stories with some good moral lessons. Read it with an eye on Christ. Read the story and say, how does this point me forward to Jesus? When I read this story, the thing that caught my eye was the scarlet cord. I thought, what in the world does that have to do with anything? Why, why a scarlet cord? And listen here, the, uh, the early church maybe pressed this a little too far. They, they talked about right, the, the color of it, the scarlet, and it's the blood of Christ. And maybe that's a little bit of a stretch, but at the very least, at the very least, the scarlet cord is very reminiscent of another moment in the Old Testament, the Passover. And so if you remember in the story of the Exodus, God's wrath is coming against the people of Israel. And the way to be saved from that wrath, it says, Israelites, you take everybody, you get your whole household, your father, your mother, your brother, your sisters, and everybody who belongs to them, and you put them inside of your home. And you paint the blood of a lamb over the door frames of your home. And, and those who are in the home, it said the Spirit of God, the angel of the Lord, would pass over that home. It was an act of faith on the Israelites' part, saying, Lord, we know we don't deserve your mercy or your grace. It's an act of faith. We're placing the blood of the lamb over the door frames of our life. In the New Testament, Jesus is called what? Our Passover lamb. It's about taking him and saying, I'm claiming Christ as, right, my Passover lamb. That I know, God, when you come to judge the world, and this is where, uh, it's about as fire and brimstone as I get, right? When, we, when Jesus comes and he returns and God comes to judge the world, to judge it of sin, the reality is all of us want a God deep down. I know we don't like to talk about it, but deep down we want a God who punishes sin. We want a God who is just, who doesn't look at the evil of the world and just shrug his shoulders or turn a blind eye and say, oh, it's no big deal. The trouble comes when we really look at our own hearts and say, what about the evil inside of there? What about the sin inside of my life? What does God do with that? What does a just God do with my sin? How is it that we know that we're going to be saved? How is it that we can have confidence to stand before God in that day and say, Lord, I know that I'm forgiven. I'm made clean. The Bible has but one answer to that question. By grace, through faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work in the cross. And so when you look at this scarlet cord, I don't think it's a stretch to say it this way. Is Jesus the scarlet cord of your life? Rahab puts this scarlet cord out from the window of her house. It is an act of faith. The onslaught is coming. She knows. And she says, the only thing that's going to protect me, I'm placing my faith in the Lord. And I'm putting this scarlet cord out of the window, trusting that everybody in my home, because of this scarlet cord, will be passed over, will be forgiven, and will be saved through that. Can I ask you, is Jesus the scarlet cord of your life? Is he the Passover lamb? Have you taken the blood of the lamb and put it over the door frames of your life? Is the scarlet cord hanging out of the window of your life? When you think about your life, everything that you've done, everything that you've not done, when you think about standing before God on that day, is your faith or your trust in your works? Are you thinking that on that day, God's gonna put all the things you've done, all the good stuff and all the bad stuff, put it on the scale and just see how it works out? Or are you trusting in Jesus, saying, Lord, the reason I believe I'm saved, forgiven and made clean, beloved in your son or daughter, is because of the man on the cross. I want, my desire for all of us, is that we'll be able to sing, we're going to sing here in a moment, right, that my forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Forgiveness was bought with the precious blood of Jesus. My hope is that all of us can sing that 
with absolute confidence and assurance. And my hope is that we'll take that message out from these walls, into our community, into the wider world, to anyone and to everyone who will listen. Jesus, the Passover lamb, Jesus, the scarlet cord, our only hope for life, forgiveness, and salvation. Let's pray together. Father, we love you. Lord, we thank you for these stories. The New Testament tells us they are for our instruction. God, I pray for those of us who are here this morning who may feel a good bit like Rahab, who look over our life and we see, Father, the sin, we see the hurt, we feel overwhelmed by the weight of it all, and we wonder, God, is salvation for uh, someone else, is salvation for other people who have lived a good life, who were raised in a Christian home? Father, I pray against any of that sentiment today, and I pray that everyone who's listening right now would embrace whatever their background, wherever they're from, whatever their family upbringing, Lord, the idea of grace, it's undeserved favor, and it's received by faith, by trusting you. And God, I pray for those of us who know you, that God will leave here today and will take steps in obedience, confession and repentance and genuine steps in obedience. And God, I pray for any who are here today who've never taken the step to trust you. That Lord, today would be the day. I wanna give a moment for you, if that's you right now, maybe over the course of this series, maybe it's been over the course of the summer and the fall, maybe it's been something that's been happening a long time in your life and you've consistently sort of held God at arm's length. But today is that moment for you where it's that fork in the road moment. I wanna give you a moment just to speak to the Lord. And I would implore you what the New Testament says, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. Today, if the Lord is calling you, make the decision today to bring all of your sin to the feet of Jesus and to be washed clean. Place your faith in him and him alone. Father, I pray for those who are making that decision right now, that God, that you would give them faith. And then in the aftermath of that decision, Lord, you'd bring people around them, brothers and sisters who can help them in their walk with Jesus. We all need each other, Lord. We don't do this alone. God, we thank you and we love you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen and amen.